Hello, and welcome back to the Manage Engine Insights podcast. I'm John Donegan, an enterprise analyst at Manage Engine, and I'll be your host. Today, we're talking about cybersecurity, and I'm pleased to be joined by Graham Cluley in the UK. Graham is extremely modest, so when I asked him for a bio, he just said, I'm just a guy. I've just been working in computer security for 30 years. I've got a podcast. I mean, you know, I'm nothing special. At any rate, his podcast, Smashing Security, has over 7 million downloads. It also won Best Security Podcast of 2018 and Best Security Podcast of 2019. Graham Cluley is an award-winning security blogger, researcher, and public speaker. He's been a well-known figure in the computer security industry since the early 1990s when he worked as a programmer, writing the first ever version of Dr. Solomon's antivirus toolkit for Windows. Graham has given talks about computer security for some of the world's largest companies. He's also worked with law enforcement agencies on investigations into hacking groups, and he regularly appears on TV and radio explaining computer security threats. Well, Grant, on the cybersecurity front, what types of attacks are on the rise and uh, which industries do you think are particularly uh, vulnerable to uh, cybercrime? Well, I think over the last few years, what we've seen is there's a few things which are proving really profitable for the cybercriminals. And when they find something that's making them a lot of money and is working, you know, they're smart enough to keep on doing it. And from that point of view, as we all know, anyone who's been following the headlines, um, it's been about just a small number of things. I mean, it's about ransomware. It's about business email compromise. It's about extortion. And the enormous success and the evolution that we've seen in ransomware attacks has, I think, really caught a lot of people on the hop. And, you know, not a day goes by, does it, without some organisation making really mainstream headlines sometimes for being attacked and their systems going down and them having that uncomfortable decision as to whether they should pay up or not. It's true. It's true. Yeah, it's been going on for a while, but I feel like it's things have gotten worse. Yeah, it, it's got more professional, I think. And also it's got, it, it's, <laughs> it's more B2B, <laughs> right? The, I think the bad guys, who are organisations, you know, they are cyber criminal infrastructure. It typically isn't one person in his back bedroom any longer. Um, there will be numbers of people who are working on these things and providing services to make sure that they stay up. They've recognised that the big bucks can be had by holding a corporation to ransom rather than your Auntie Ethel. And, of course, you know, once that happened a bit, then the message began to get through to people of, you know, we should really be doing backups so you can recover, you know, if your data's encrypted. But, of course, when the bad guys steal your data and then threaten to publish it online, then it doesn't matter that you've got a backup because they, they can still do damage by leaking your data or selling it to other criminals. True, true. And it seems like they have an, at least some kind of an idea of which companies will pay up. Is that your take? Do you think they kind of know which, which industries to target or which which companies to target in some cases? Um, I think they do. I think I think they've they've seen that some targets, first of all, are softer than others mm. in terms of they may have poorer cybersecurity, they may have underinvested. So there will be, for instance, educational and healthcare. Um, which sometimes haven't been spending most of their money on cybersecurity historically, which may be easy to affect. But of course, the impact um, of bringing down those organisations or disrupting their activities is considerable. But the other fascinating thing which has happened, of course, is we, we saw this 
huge tidal wave of ransomware attacks. And then the insurers got involved mm. and started to say, well, look, you know, maybe you need cybersecurity insurance. Maybe you need ransomware specific insurance as well. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen some of the cyber criminal gangs do is actually uh, is actually hack into the insurance companies oh, wow. and get hold of the data of who their clients are, who their corporate clients are, who have taken out ransomware insurance. And then the criminals target those clients because they know how much they've taken out insurance for wow. and how much money they have available to them to pay up. Right. And only once they've exhausted that huge list do they then try and extort money from the insurance company as well. <laughs> so it's... It is astonishing, um, you know, that there's, well, it's, it's a bit like, you know, trawling for fish, isn't it, in, in the ocean? You know, it's like you put out this great big net and you're just hoovering up, you're just scooping up as much of this as you can. And you're just thinking, OK, we are just going to scrape money out of all of these organisations as thoroughly as possible. It's a real industrial operation. Right, right. I read recently that Lloyd's of London, right? They're one of the biggest underwriters of cyber mm. security insurance. They're they're growing a little wary of taking on, you know, new clients next year, um, just because they so many companies have been paying out in ransomware. I think, yeah. you know, their margins are getting hit. So I think they're a little skittish about taking on new customers. You know, it's it's kind of understandable, isn't it? I mean, of course, just like if you take out house insurance or car insurance, your insurer expects you to have taken appropriate steps to prevent your house being broken into or your car being stolen and you know did you have an immobilizer did you have the alarm turned on did where did you park it did you leave the doors unlocked and similarly organizations are expected to have certain cybersecurity measures in place have technology in place have best practices be offer training some of these insurance companies now you know they have a lovely sideline as well where they actually say well not only are we going to sell you the insurance we're also going to sell you the training mm. And we're going to maybe audit your systems and make sure because they don't want to pay out either. But they can even charge you more for that kind of thing. But I can understand them being wary. And of course, there's now pressure from some governments as well um, and legislators saying, well, you shouldn't pay the ransomware guys. Right. Um, because you are effectively feeding... Uh, criminals you are putting money in their pockets and you're encouraging them to launch more attacks right it, it, it puts the victims in a very difficult position i mean i sometimes see cybersecurity pundits and you should never pay a ransom you know should, and you know on a purely sort of religious basis like a doctrine i can understand that mm -hmm. because you don't want to encourage the criminals to carry on but imagine you actually own a company imagine you employ five thousand people mm -hmm. And your company is on the ropes because of this ransomware. And your customers are annoyed of you. They're going to go clear off to other people. They're threatening to take action against you. Right. And you don't want the data leaking. You may well think, well, it's a tough decision. But in order to keep my staff employed, in order to not make people redundant, in order to keep my business alive, maybe I should pay up. Yeah. You know, it's a horrible decision. But, you know... I, <laughs> that that's what CEOs have to make sometimes is horrible decisions. Right. No, it's true. It's true. I wonder if part of that decision making process is, you know, if you think that if you have cyber insurance, will the bad actors see that you have cyber insurance and then maybe you you become a target because you're more likely to pay out? 
Well, in, in some cases, we do know that that's happened. Um, we, we, we do know that they've done their intelligence and gathered that. I mean, that's the other thing about a ransomware attack. We've seen more and more attacks where the cyber criminals will come in and they will lurk and they will gather information about your network infrastructure and they will plough through your email archives. You know, they may know more about your business than you do by the end of it. So it may be that they've gathered an awful lot of business intelligence about your organisation, both to tell how, you know, how successful you are as a business, but also different ways to exploit them. And that's where, I mean, the other thing I mentioned there was not just ransomware, but business email compromise, mm -hmm. where sometimes organisations have been stung for millions and millions of pounds through fake invoices associated with, you know, maybe you've got a building project going on. Maybe you're having a new building built or uh, sometimes we've seen this happen at schools, for instance. They're having a new wing built and, you know, that's a legitimate process which is going forward, which is costing millions. But the criminals come in, they see the emails, they pose as your contractors right. and send in fake invoices and maybe have millions of dollars transferred into their bank accounts. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting from a social engineering standpoint, some of these emerging technologies seem to be helping the, the bad actors. Have you covered deep fake audio and video before, Graham? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that terrifying? I mean, that's terrifying for society at large, I think. This thought that we cannot trust. And, you know, it was bad enough when Photoshop came along. Right. And it's like, wow, you can, you can, you can make someone look skinnier, paste them into a picture of, you know, a party and suddenly they're at the party as well. I mean, that was terrifying in itself. But now we see people talking or we hear their voices it, with remarkably little input data and not that much processing power. You are able to produce very, very convincing videos and audio now. And that could, of course, be used by the cyber criminals to fool people into believing that they're talking to the boss or the head of finance or, you know, it's... Um, yeah. We, we've seen some very elementary attempts at that. I remember there was a case a few years ago um, involving French millionaires. And what happened was the cyber criminals contacted very rich people in France, posing as, I think it was the defence minister of uh, the French government. And they said, well, we'd like to do a Skype call with you or something because um, we have this situation. And uh, when the uh, millionaires had this conversation with the, quote, defence minister... Mm -hmm. um, they were told that there were French citizens who were being held hostage in the Middle East and it was against government policy to pay the ransom. Oh, wow. But if the millionaire could help out, then the government would see to it that, you know, their, the money would get back to them through appropriate channels. So they wouldn't be seen to be paying for it, etc., etc. Now, that wasn't done using deep fakes. What the criminals actually did was they had a silicon mask and they actually created a set pretending to be the office of the French defence minister oh, wow. with, with the tricolour in the background and books and it's like the leather desk. and That seems know, like a lot of work. That seems like a lot of work. It, well, they're going to make a lot of money. Right, right. Know? But it's, it's real Mission Impossible stuff that we're dealing with now. And the advent of deepfake technology and, and synthetic sort of scams like this mm -hmm. means that this is going to be even easier for people to pull off. And we're all going to end up hopefully so much more cynical yeah no it's interesting because you know i'm sure there was a, a mass hysteria over uh photoshop when it first came on the market now we kind of yeah. just take it for granted that you know we can't necessarily trust whether or not a 
an image as right. doctored, and I think that's going to become more of a an issue for sure. It is a real issue, and of course, the other thing with this deep fake technology is even if someone manages to debunk it and say, well, that can't be true because this person was at this location at this time and wasn't at this particular place, it's too late because the fake video or the fake audio has been spread so far and wide right. on social media right. and everyone assumes it's true because they saw it. And so so far fewer people actually see the correction. Right. So, you know, it, it all combines in, you know, the, the deep fake technology, the social media, the propensity we have as humans to share news before we check the facts for ourselves. Right. Is something which just adds to this huge, huge problem. Yep. Yep. No question. So two things that I'm looking at right now, and we don't have to talk about either of these, but mm. it's algorithmic decision making and also these big tech companies we're blindly giving a lot of our personal data to, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world. I, I know you're a big fan of Zuckerberg, by the way, from Smashing <laughs> Security. You sing his praises a lot. Huge fans, right. huge fans of the right. Zuck, yeah. Right. Where do you see the future? Do you see a correction from like a data privacy standpoint? Or do you see kind of a correction where companies are going to not be able to... Sometimes we learn that our data has been collected after there's been a data breach, right, in some cases? Um, yeah. So these companies... And there are, there are situations where there are companies who have gathered your personal information and you've never had any interaction with them whatsoever. Hmm. And I'm thinking of the Experians and the Equifaxes of this world, you know, these sort of credit rating agencies who know an awful lot about you. Right. But you may never have even heard of them. Yeah. But when they suffer a data breach, there's huge amounts of personal information which is uh, then falling into the public domain which could be exploited by scammers and identity thieves and cyber criminals but yeah there is this problem of big tech as well in some ways i i worry more about big tech than i do the cyber criminal gangs because these are people who are basically working without anyone looking over their shoulder without anyone grabbing them by the scruff of the neck and saying actually no you can't do that and taking action against them it appears that many of these organizations if they are brought to justice as it were if they are brought to account will sometimes be fined relatively small amounts considering the many many billions of dollars which they've managed to make and there's, there's often seems to be an attitude of well we'll do this and we'll apologize later yeah and people have a very short memory mm -hmm. regarding some of these organizations and what they've done to us in the past mm -hmm. so i can't be terribly optimistic about it unfortunately i don't think they are going to change their spots and at the same time, I think many governments around the world are actually frightened of the power of these organizations and just how much influence they wield over the general population. Yeah, no, it's interesting. In some cases, it seems like the experience and there's other companies like I think Veriset is one. They're surreptitiously collecting data, whether it's location-based data on mobile phones or just any kind of data. And the government pays them for the data, as I understand it. And they don't have to do like a valid search and seizure through like the Fourth Amendment. Some right-wing pundits have said, you know, people were up in arms over credit agencies in the 80s, but now we take it, you know, we're used to that. Like to get a loan, you know, we have to rely on them. So maybe these data brokerage companies will gain uh, legitimacy, but yeah, I don't know. It remains to be seen. Well, that's that's the thing, isn't it? Is it, it is, to use the cliche, it is a slippery slope. It is, it, you do find over time that what's normal 
is something which you would have found completely and utterly unacceptable 10 years earlier. <laughs> and so there are behaviors which we exhibit now or behaviors which we accept by companies. It's like, oh, well, everyone does that. Right. And so we think that that's fine. But I, I would argue that 25 years ago, we would have found it utterly alien to post pictures of our holidays on the web or on the internet. We, we would, you know, pick your holiday snaps would be something which maybe you would show to relatives on your return. Um, maybe you would show to some very close friends, but you certainly wouldn't publish for any, any old Tom, Dick or Harry to see, let alone for someone to go through those photographs and do facial recognition and work out who your friends are. Right. And then begin to make assumptions or what you may be interested in purchasing or, you know, political viewpoints and all manner of other decisions based upon that. So I think over time... Um, there is a real danger that people just get exhausted and fatigued by all of these issues. And so you just kind of think, oh, well, everyone's doing it. We just have to accept it because how else am I going to keep in touch with my friends and family when we're under lockdown or something like that? You know, there, sure. there are no, there's no easy alternative. People don't want to pick up the phone and just have a chat. Um, they would rather take the easy option. Yeah, sure. No, even my 80-year-old uh, grandmother and I are, are texting now. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. No, you're right. So it seems like the legal world always moves slower than the technologies, right? So um, mm. which benefits, you know, all the bad actors. Or I guess my question to you would be, what are some of the biggest things that should be regulated the most? Is it algorithmic decision-making? Is it this, you know, a big tech overreach? Well, or I don't know how you could possibly legislate against algorithms or how you could get someone else to analyze an algorithm and say okay this one is okay but this one isn't because it's it's really how it's applied in an individual circumstance and for that to keep up with the speed of technology you know i mean there is a genuine concern here that innovation would be enormously stifled if everything had to go through a review for three years True. Before you could do anything. So I, I can't imagine that sort of thing is ever really going to happen. Mm. What I would like is for there to be more savviness and more understanding amongst the general population as to what some of these sites are doing and how they make their money. I would love for people to understand that sometimes there's a great value in paying for something. Yes. Because then you can take your money away or you can choose who you want to be with. So there, there are, for instance, there are programs on my computer for which there are completely and utterly free alternatives. Mm. But I really like the idea of paying for some of those pieces of software because then I'm a customer, then I'm important, then I know that they value me and don't want to lose me mm -hmm. because I'm, I'm adding to their income and they don't have to do something horrible and shady yeah. to try and make their money. So, for instance, I, I actually really like Twitter. I find Twitter very useful in my job. I'm not on Facebook because Facebook is just vile and it serves no purpose for me. But Twitter, yeah, Twitter, although it has ghastliness on it as well, mm -hmm. um, it, it is useful to me. I would love to give Twitter, I don't know, $100 a year, something like that. I'd be comfortable doing that for the value I get out of it. Yeah. If the, and, and in return, if they removed some of the things which I really don't like about Twitter, so I'd have an option to turn off ads and turn off some of its algorithmic decision-making as to what should be in my timeline and things like that, that, that would be great. So, un unfortunately, some of these, 
sites, you know, it, it's all about the advertising dollar. And that's when, of course, you are just the meat in the sausage factory. Right, right. Yeah. No, I remember years ago, Zuckerberg, he was really adamant that everyone used their real name and, and he was going to keep it free. And it, it became clear to me that, OK, we're paying for this in some capacity, right? Mm. Facebook is certainly not free. They're definitely selling our data. And this is years ago. Obviously, things have gotten crazier since then. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. There's another, there's another cost to it as well, of course, uh, as with much other social media, which is time, which is when I was young, maybe when you were young, you know, you would get bored. Mm -hmm. And when you were bored, you didn't have a phone to turn to or a little computer to turn to. You had a library to turn to. And so you'd go and read a book. True. Or you'd do some art or you'd learn how to play chess or whatever it was that, you know, you enjoyed doing, which probably improved your mood and improved your understanding of the world and your vocabulary or whatever other things. Whereas now, we are all addicted to our notifications or checking our Instagram whatever it is it's, it's, it's like cigarettes yep and we can't give it up so if you are sat at a bus stop and your bus is going to take five minutes what do you do do you ponder the world and think about your life and how you could improve yourself or the conversation which you had with your partner that morning no you don't what you do is because you're bored you instantly turn to your phone either to play a video game or to watch a video or to participate on social media and it's just such a huge time suck yeah. No, it's true. And these uh, new generations, you know, they they don't know a world without the phones. And, you know, I'm 40 now and I spend my phone's telling me I spent eight hours, you know, screen time looking at the phone. I'm like, that can't be right. There had to have been some apps running in the background or something, you know. But mm. you you worry from a media effect standpoint how this is going to affect the younger generation. I mean, but I guess every exactly. every generation, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they probably thought the same about television, didn't they? Or rock and roll. And, you know, I'm sure I'm sure there have been similar concerns in the past about some of these things. But um, I don't know. I, I Hey, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not being holier than thou, right? I am addicted to my phone just as much as everybody else. So I'm not saying I'm any better. So I'm basically puffing on 40 cigarettes a day um, with my phone as well. So, it, But I, I do worry about that and I guess I worry mostly about the impact it's going to have on young people rather than people of my elevated age <laughs> right no and they've already started to um, you know Facebook obviously owns Instagram and they're you know facing some pushback on the effects that it's potentially having on teenage girls and what have you but I think that even yes. that's just the tip of the iceberg yeah yeah well that's ghastly isn't it I'm, I'm so grateful I don't have a teenage daughter or something who would be getting messed up by all the images and bullying and vileness which goes on on some of those platforms. I mean, that's really deeply disturbing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's true. It's a little ominous. I think part of Facebook changing their name to Meta might have just been a PR move, you know, because people are starting to realize how insidious, or not even, just how overtly creepy. Ah, yeah. It's a bit like renaming Three Mile Island or something like that. Isn't yes, it, it is. It's yeah yeah very much so yeah it's it was a, it's a toxic brand and it's making bad headlines all the time and that they very smartly realized oh maybe we should call ourselves something else but what they changed their name to is actually making me more concerned i think um <laughs> right the the meta um well it seems to me that mark zuckerberg you know didn't have very good social skills when he was like at harvard or wherever and and he kind of resorted to, you know, creating Facebook. And now he wants to, yeah. you know, kind of live in like a 
uh, Ready Player One world um, or what have you. I don't know. I'm imagining you have interesting thoughts on this more so than I do, but. I'm just, I'm just a curmudgeon. I'm just a, <laughs> no, I, I just look at those sort of things and I look at them the same way I would have looked at something like Second Life 20 years ago. Right. And just think seriously, you know, and maybe it's fun to do it for half an hour once, but, <laughs> but I, I just think, I, I, are people really going to plug themselves into these sort of things? I'm not convinced. I don't know. And, but of course, the other problem is that all the problems which we see on the existing social media sites are going to be replicated yes. in the metaverse as well. So you will have bullying, you will have sexual harassment, you will have vileness and people proffering disgusting beliefs on these things and making it a thoroughly toxic and unpleasant place. And who's going to be policing it? Mark Zuckerberg? Right. Well, he hasn't done a great job of policing his existing social networks. I think things are going to be even tougher in the metaverse as well. So, uh, I don't know. I, I, I always imagine it's just going to be a bunch of teenage boys scrawling yeah. penis graffiti all over the bathroom walls um, rather than something that's going to be terribly serious. But maybe I'm wrong, but it, it's certainly not for me. Right. Yeah, no, I, I share your concerns, honestly, uh, given the track record. And the Winklevoss twins too are raising money to get into this space and companies like roblox are making yeah. inroads um it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out zuckerberg behind the wheel is is concerning to to put it mildly yeah i mean maybe it'll maybe it'll turn into something i mean you know we probably would never have imagined that people would want to watch videos of other people playing video games but based upon that twitch became this huge powerhouse, you know, because it turned out people really like watching other people play video games. So, um, you know, it, it, the world can be surprising. But whether that's, whether it's really a good thing or not, it's like, I, I really come back to this point which I made about, you know, all of these things being such a huge waste of time, you know, a way to soak up all your time. If Mark Zuckerberg had had an iPhone when he was at Harvard... Right. Presumably, he wouldn't have invented Facebook. Hey, maybe someone should go back in time and give him one. Right. Maybe we could stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of it is, too, I think we don't read the terms and conditions, right? We don't read the small print on the no. privacy. We don't know which company is necessary, or at least I don't know who's collecting data on me sometimes. And, and I think that's something that needs to be rectified for society to kind of force the yeah. big tech companies' hands a little bit. Yeah, and, uh, well, we have seen some attempts. I mean, for instance, we've seen um, Apple are beginning to give you a sort of fairly brief sort of top-level idea as to this is what this app is going to do and this is what information it's going to collect from you. So they are sort of policing that now in the App Store, which is a really good thing that they're doing that. So it's something which is accessible, easy to consume, and hopefully you can make an informed decision about it. But, of course, not everything goes through the app store not everything's going to be covered in that fashion right um so inevitably there will be sometimes hundreds and hundreds of pages of legalese and you know who is going to read that your just instant reaction is to go page down page down page down okay okay just install the damn thing but um 
they've got you then by the short and curlies. Yeah, yeah. And all these IoT devices, right? I mean, with the holidays coming, mm. these televisions, you know, some of these companies make more money apparently from selling what we're watching to third parties than they do from actually selling the TVs themselves. Or at least it's part of their business model, right? Companies like Roku and Vizio is one. What are your thoughts on these IoT devices being, I don't know, an issue? There suddenly are a lot of IoT devices which are collecting a huge amount of information about us and are monetizing our activities in ways which we may not fully understand. Some are playing the long game as well. Some are simply collecting huge amounts of information about how people speak mm. or how people look and how people walk um, because they know at some point they're going to be able to feed this into some huge machine learning algorithm um, and better their you know uh, their technology and their artificial intelligence work you know which will come along in the future i mean it is amazing how things have leapt along and we've made enormous technological strides i think um in some of these technologies in a relatively short period of time um but part of that is because we've all been feeding information into it and if it's a responsible company which stores that information safely and doesn't abuse it in some fashion or sell it or rent it to other people who might then abuse it as long as we know about it then that's all right we can make an informed decision but sometimes we know what they're doing but they don't look after it properly or they abuse it other times we simply didn't know that they were collecting it in the first place but it, it does worry me a little bit when devices are so extraordinarily cheap <laughs> and you think how can you possibly buy a television for that little money of that size, you know, or and and when you turn the darn thing on, you find it's festooned with ads across a third of the screen. Or um, I know there was uh, one smart TV which was sending back information, both about the conversations which you were having in front of the television, but also was recording details as to what programs you were watching. Right. And so th they do begin to you know pick up a picture as to who you are and what you're interested in and. That normally is being done for advertising reasons. Right, right. Yeah, no, I remember uh, I was teaching high school one summer and this girl, her dog died and then Facebook was feeding her ads for dog food or something to that effect because the algorithm yeah. wasn't trained properly yet. Well, maybe she posted an image of a dog because, you know, that these things are clever enough now to work out what is in the photograph which you post. True. Um, and, and to learn information that way as well. So... Yeah, there's a story, um, I can't remember what it was, it was one of the department stores in America and there was a story going around that they knew, if well, maybe this is a, apocryphal, I don't know, but the, the claim was that they knew a customer was pregnant before the customer knew. Oh, wow. Because they'd observed how her behaviour had changed and the purchases that she had made. <laughs> and so they, they were fairly confident, you know, she's pregnant. That's disturbing. Isn't it extraordinary? No, that's wild. Um, just to go back to the deepfake stuff for a second, if we can, we don't want to get into a situation where everyone's questioning everything, right? And then it benefits yeah. bad actors and people who are trying to manipulate the stock market. And yeah. I'm pretty concerned about synthetic media. What's the scariest thing that you're worried about, would you say, from an infosec or a... Oh, well, it, it, in terms of society. I, I, I certainly think deepfake technology is petrifying. And I think initially when we saw it, 
it was being used mostly to sort of like, you know, create porn movies of like famous actresses and all that sort of nonsense. But it, it's clear that it's much, much more frightening than that. And it's become very sophisticated quite quickly. Yep. And although there are companies who are saying, well, we, we have a technology which we believe can tell the difference between a real video and a fake video, it is going to be an arms race. And if they are successful at detecting some of those things, um, all that's going to happen is the people who are making the deep fakes are going to get better and better at it and more convincing. And as I said before, even if even if it is possible to run a tool which says, oh, actually, this video is a fake, mm -hmm. by the time that's happened, it's too late. Right. Because it's been halfway around the world and you're still trying to get your trousers on. Yep. So, it, it, you know, these things can spread so extraordinarily quickly. So I think that is a huge challenge for society and as we all know in recent years there have been allegations that countries have been interested in destabilizing their enemies mm -hmm. through creating confusion and division yeah and you know we are in a divided world right now right whether it be politically or because of the pandemic or whether we believe in the vaccine or not believe in the vaccine you know and there are countries who will benefit from the fact that we are turning into two tribes rather than one country right so you know that is greatly worrying i think and for me that goes beyond the likes of ransomware or business email compromise or insider threats i mean those are yeah sure if you're running a business you should be worried about all those things because they could be devastating for your business but it's not going to be devastating for society but i think when we can no longer believe our own eyes that's when things really begin to get problematical yeah no it's true yeah it wouldn't take much unnecessarily especially the stock market i mean you could just do a deep fake video of Elon Musk saying something crazy and you could manipulate, you know, a cryptocurrency or even yeah. the price of Tesla or whatever. A few years ago, we saw um, one of the, um, I think it was Associated Press had their Twitter account hacked hmm. by um, a hacking group called um, the Syrian Electronic Army. Okay. And what they did was they posted a message saying, breaking news, uh, explosion at the White House. Oh, wow. And... It wasn't true, right? Yep. And it they, they simply didn't have a proper security on their Twitter account. But the stock exchange, the Dow Jones, plummeted as a consequence. And, of course, once it starts plummeting, all the algorithms kick in and other people automatically start selling as well. It's like, it's sort of, now, it did correct itself, you know, within like 40 minutes or so, and uh, the, the account was restored. But there was what many people considered a trusted source because it wasn't some crazy website claiming this it was associated press right um but they hadn't properly secured that account and so the fake news appeared and you know it, i now i don't know that that was done to make money i don't think it necessarily was i think it was more about creating mischief but there would have been the potential for instance if there was someone who was short selling for instance yes um to to spread fake news and maybe make themselves a very tidy amount of money absolutely and I think we're seeing, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, these attacks like on the Colonial Pipeline and other mm. things, we're seeing the bad actors kind of attack, the, you know, important infrastructure. The Colonial Pipeline was kind of an eye-opener. There was also like a meat packing company. JBS Foods, that's right. Number one meat meat uh, packing company, I think it is, yeah. Yeah. In America, yeah. Yeah, so that's a little disconcerting that, that these bad actors are realizing that some of our important infrastructure, you know, these companies may or may not have the right IT infrastructure in place. I don't know if always they, they know uh, the impact they're going to cause. I think sometimes they just get into a network and think, 
seems to be a big enough place. <laughs> Let's launch the ransomware. You know, and it, yeah. in some cases, I mean, with something like the Colonial Pipeline hack, if I were the hacking group which had been responsible for that, I'd probably deeply regret that because what you've done is you've just poked the FBI and the CIA and law enforcement agencies around the world with a very sharp stick. That's true. And it's like, that's a tension which you don't really want. When the president goes on TV and starts talking about your attack, then you should start getting very, very worried indeed. Right. As to what's going to happen next. And we have seen, let's not, you know, let's not forget, we've seen some real successes in the fight against the ransomware operators this year. People have been arrested, affiliates have been rounded up all around the world there. Although not all countries are being as helpful as we would like mm-hmm. in handling this, and there are some countries where it appears to be a fairly safe harbour to launch your ransomware attacks from, there is an awful lot of coordination going on through the rest of the world to try and track these people down and prevent them from causing more mayhem. Right. Yeah, no, that is a good thing. And as far as you know, some of these nation states sponsoring some of the attacks, it seems like, heaven forbid, there's like another war, but it seems like cyber will play a, a dangerous role in, in a war. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and not only in misinformation, which we've talked about already, but um, if you think about it these days, when a, you know, if an army invades another country, one of the first things which they want to do is they want to seize control of the radio stations and the TV stations Mm. because that prevents people from being able to communicate and they can control the communication. And if you just look at, think of that from a modern viewpoint, you are going to want to have a cyber element to your attack as well to make sure that you are controlling communications, that you are bringing down other communications which otherwise could be used to rally troops and forces against you. Right. So... Cyber is absolutely part of the equation when it comes to kinetic attacks as well. Right. And, and we have seen instances, we, we saw a, um, we've seen a few cases where drones have been used actually to take out establishments which were uh, alleged to be the, the headquarters of cyber operations for um, various groups in the Middle East in the past. Hmm. And there was an attack in Florida, if I'm not mistaken, on the water supply or... Or at least an attempted mm. attack on the water supply. Um, nothing yep. came of that, though. Um, but they had the right protections in place, as I recall. But but still scary, I guess. It is scary. It is scary. I, mean, I, I, I don't know. In one particular case, which I remember, I don't know if it's the one you're referring to, what happened was because of the pandemic, hmm. um, there were people working from home who were sort of operators for the water utilities. And so they basically controlling devices and critical infrastructure from their homes and their home computer gets hacked um, which meant that the hackers were able to gain remote control over everything which was happening on that computer which means that they're then in charge of the dam or the water treatment facility and it's like crikey yeah um you need to have some better security because of course the world has been turned topsy-turvy in the last couple of years um with many of us working from home and Although generally, I think people have done extremely well adapting to that and getting things up and running fairly quickly, we cannot forget about the importance of security to make sure that it's only authorised personnel who are doing things. Right. Uh, To that end, I guess I would be uh, remiss if I didn't ask you about how you think the the pandemic and this kind of migration to remote work. Uh, You and I are both working from farms today. Um, Yeah. (laughs) 
do you think that's been a net positive or or a net negative for um, you know IT infrastructure and security in general this pandemic overall? I think I, I I'm going to try and be positive about it. <laughs> There's so much negative activity about what's happened in the last couple of years. Yeah, isn't it great? most of us have now accepted okay it is possible to work remotely that the technology is there thank goodness this pandemic happened now rather than 20 years ago when the broadband infrastructure simply wasn't there right and we wouldn't be able to i mean i'm not saying this is a good thing because obviously we would much rather be with other people but it will mean that people will be able to work more flexibly and maybe they'll be able to work where they choose to want to live rather than where the the bosses insist upon it but there is this cybersecurity element as well. Yeah. A lot of the vendors have worked hard to make sure that they can control and secure remote workstations um, from the various attacks. But, you know, if you're working from home and you've got your kids running around your feet and you've got the washing machine on and you've got the Amazon delivery guy ringing the doorbell, mm-hmm. it's very easy to get distracted for a second and make a mistake and click on the wrong link or press the wrong button and boom, it's gone. Right. So I think I think that's one of the huge challenges is there's just so much distraction at home which maybe wasn't there so much in the office. Right. And also, um, I think initially there were a lot of phishing attacks related to COVID, right? Like uh, fake oh, yeah. health links and things of that nature, yeah. Yeah. And we'll, um, we'll begin to see that again, I'm sure, with Omicron as well. Yeah, unfortunately. Now, you moved out to a farm. I'm noticing just socially in Austin, every other license plate is an out-of-state <laughs> license plate. And the you know cost of living has gone up since the pandemic because everyone's moving here. It's becoming a tech hub, too. So it's not in a vacuum. It's not solely related to the pandemic. But do you see people moving, work changing? It seems like people are talking about this great migration or no, no. Oh, the great resignation. That's what it is. Everyone quitting their jobs and, uh, you know, demanding to work remotely. And from a, like a cultural perspective, what are you seeing in uh, the UK and any thoughts on the culture of work? Well, I, I think it's important to note, first of all, that myself and colleagues and so forth are incredibly fortunate in so much as we have a job, which we are able to do remotely. There are other jobs where you have to be present. Sure. Um, and, you know, how lucky are we that we've been able to do that? And often it will be the people who are actually in lower paid jobs. That's a good point. Um, who have been having to put themselves at greater risk using public transport and traveling back and forth, you know, in order that um, we can live the privileged life which we do have. Right. Um, so so there is that. So it's not the case that all of us can do this. Um, but for many of us, I think the last couple of years has given us an opportunity to evaluate our life yeah and to look at the balance of you know work versus leisure and work versus family mm-hmm. and make some you know big decisions about well what do we really want from our lives because we're only going to be here three score you know three score and ten isn't it right and uh, then we're, <laughs> we're living kind of on borrowed time after that so we might as well make the most of it and personally I've been lucky that I've never had a huge commute to work even when I was working in an office, but I know people who used to spend a couple of hours each way, every day. And I'm sure over the last couple of years, they thought, crumbs, I don't want to go back to that again. Yeah, yeah. Because what a way to live. If, if, you, if it's possible to avoid it, then I can fully understand why people would want to and they would use the opportunity of remote working to 
basically mold a better life for themselves. Right, right. Yeah, no, you're right. It has, you know, facilitated that introspection and from an existential standpoint, it has had some effects. But also from a cybersecurity standpoint too, it's probably caused some organizations to bolster their their IT infrastructure um, to facilitate oh, the remote stuff as yes. well. Yeah. Well, Graham, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to come on the Manage Engine Insights podcast. We really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks very much, John. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you very much to Graham and a big thank you to everyone for listening. If you have any comments, please leave them in the comment section and we'll get back to you. And please stay tuned for our next installment.